Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Rewatch Project with Hannah and Mike. I am Mike, and with me, as always, is Hannah. How are you tonight, Hannah? I'm very ready for something that does not involve taking children to school productions and school and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, we'll be, um, you've been a theatre parent this week, haven't you? So, uh, yeah, it's been a busy week with the kids. Yeah, it has. Um, and we are at the weekend, and we are going to enjoy watching some television. Now, which television... Are we watching tonight, Hannah? We are watching the second episode of the first season of Twin Peaks, Mm -hmm. namely Traces to Nowhere. Um, Agent Cooper enjoys the comforts of the Great Northern Hotel. Bobby Briggs and Mike Nelson are released from jail. Dr. Hayward hands over the autopsy report on Laura Palmer. It is directed by Dwayne Dunham and written by Mark Frost and David Lynch. That's interesting because Dwayne Dunham, he's he's a it's funny, he he's a key collaborator of or almost at this point in his career exclusively of David Lynch and George Lucas. Oh really? He edited he was an editor on Star Wars well, he was a co editor on Star Wars and the Empire Strikes Back and he edited Return of the Jedi. Yeah. Uh, he was the first man to ever wear, wear the Boba Fett costume. The, the, all the test footage that they shot, which yeah. you see on bonus features, is Dwayne Dunham. Yeah. But he was primarily an editor. Um, he edited Blue Velvet. It, it, it's funny, him directing this episode came about because David Lynch was prepping Wild at Heart, and he really wanted Dwayne Dunham to edit it, but Dwayne Dunham had already committed to do to edit another film and didn't want, although he really wanted to work with Lynch again, he didn't want to be a flake and blow out of being in this other, editing this other film. Um, So Lynch offered him a directing gig on Twin Peaks to sort of sweeten the deal. Mm. And he wanted to break into directing. So that was how they got him in and and why he's directing this episode uh, and would become an editor on Twin Peaks. I mean, and he even, he edited every episode of the third season from just a few years ago as well. So he's a real key collaborator. And of course, the pilot was shot, you know, significantly before the first episode. So this was the first episode that they shot in California, you know, on sets and with the sort of different environments. Just the proper run. Yeah, so yeah. it really established the look of the show. And he said that he was very careful to emulate Lynch's style. And he kind of characterised it by saying that the thing with Lynch's style was that there was a lot of fixed cameras, you know, and he he said that he always felt that it was like um, photography, that Lynch framed in the same way that a photographer frames more than a filmmaker. Yeah. Uh, and also that he emphasised lots of reds and browns and kind of earth tones. Yeah. So it's interesting that you when you watch this first episode, my big memory of this is it's not directed by David Lynch, but it feels very David Lynch. You know, yeah. it's like somebody trying to kind of, do his style. It's very elemental, isn't it? Yeah. You know. And I think yeah. a lot of the time when people think of David Lynch's style, they're not just thinking of his style, but they're thinking of the kind of the imprinted style of Twin Peaks. Yeah. But yeah. um but before we get into that, a uh, quick reminder that we appreciate feedback at Rewatch Project Podcast at gmod.com or you can leave us comments on our YouTube channel. Uh, and we're also available on Instagram and Twitter, where in both cases we are at Rewatch Proj. Check out our friend shows, Chin Stroker versus Punter, Film Bastards. His film, her movie, video game landfill, the good, the bad, and the odd, and the talk without rhythm podcast. And we also appreciate um, 
reviews, preferably positive, on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts. So, Hannah, do we have any podcast? Uh, any podcast? Do we have any? Yes, we do have podcast. Do we have any feedback? We do. Um, we've got a couple of emails. Oh, cool. So I will read them. The first one is called New Listener. Hey, Hannah and Mike, Daryl from Chicago here. As a Twin Peaks fan, I just discovered your podcast, and it is very well timed as I am about to start a rewatch of the show and exhausted all of the good Peaks podcasts out there. So this was a welcome surprise. I have not listened to your previous shows, but I was very pleasantly surprised. Most Twin Peaks podcasts or reactions tend to either be super analytical and quite dry or on the other extreme and light, but insubstantial and uninformed. So far, I feel that your show strikes a really nice balance of kind of riffing on the show whilst being super insightful as well, with a little nostalgia thrown in. Keep up the good work and I will keep the feedback coming. Daryl. That's, that's nice. Thank you, Daryl. Thank you, Daryl. That's amazing. Oh, Thank that, you so much. So far, I notice. Uh, they, well, <laughs> you know, fair enough. We're only one yeah. episode in. No, and I, I mean, I... I Appreciate that because I mean that's kind of what we were going for. Yeah, I think that's you know absolutely the line we're trying to yeah. follow. Yeah, I mean we, we, this isn't you know a script. You get the thing. super insightful things from Mike and <sighs> the the flying by the seat of the pants stuff from me. Well, I mean ultimately this, and I hate, I don't like using the term because there's a bit of a connotation with it. But these are reactions. These are yeah. we're watching it and then we're saying what we think. You know, yeah. um, there's not really any preparation or notes and i don't say that like you know oh my god it's probably really obvious that, that there isn't you know you know we're not trying to do um a great piece of you know literary analysis no uh, you know i mean i'd i'd like to do that one day maybe on twin peaks but that's not what this is this is where it's friday night we're watching a tv show and then we're going to talk about yeah, it yeah you know, this that's is what... two tired parents having kind of their date night yeah yeah absolutely basically. yeah but inviting you like yeah. The kinky people Come that we are. Come along and watch. Yeah, just, you know, <laughs> pop your car keys in the bowl and, yeah. you, and your clothes on the chair and, uh, you know, settle in. Anything pop, else? Pop your pie on the table and your coffee in the <laughs> Yes. Exactly. You pop your fish in the percolator and uh, <laughs> away we go. Uh, we also have another email entitled Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Twin Peaks. Oh. Hi, Hannah and Mike. Helen from Wales again. Hey. It's Yay, always so we got some, somebody carried over from the Agents Ooh. of S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, um, so I have just finished my first time watching Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. as well as a complete listen through of your show and wow, that was a lot to take in. Hmm. I feel like not only have I seen a great TV show, but I have absorbed a huge amount of information about your lives. Too much information <laughs> about our lives. Um, I will be hitting play on the pilot of Twin Peaks tomorrow night and we'll let you know how that goes. Keep up the great work and thank you, thank you, thank you, yeah. Helen. I'll be curious to know if Thank you've seen. Thank you, Helen. I'll be curious to know if you've seen Twin Peaks before. Helen. Yeah, absolutely. Let us know. Yeah, that's great news. Um, if you haven't already, because obviously we can't remember yeah. if you did. Well, I mean, yeah, because she had not watched any any Agents of Shield when she first fed back to no, us. No, um, she first fed back on Parks and Rec. Yeah, it was one of the Sorbet episodes. I yeah, think. I think so. Yeah, um, and yeah. We're so happy that you're still here, Helen. Yeah, that's an intense amount of Agents of Shield. It is, to, and uh, an intense amount of Hannah and Mike. Well, probably more because I mean, uh, often you know our episodes will run longer than the episodes of Agents of Shield, so yeah. she's probably spent more time. Yeah, that's a uh, that's a lot. That's a yeah. lot. Plus, the three very eventful years that we've had. Mm. You know, lots of house moves, lots of injury, medical injuries, COVID. 
a lot's been happening. We've done it all, baby. Yeah. And we've watched a lot of television in that time. And we will continue to do that right now. We're going to hit pause. We're going to watch uh, Traces to Nowhere. The uh, And again, I, I saw Mark Blessing from The Good, The Bud, and The Odd was like, oh, you're numbering the episodes incorrectly. And it's like, there's no agreement. There's no agreement. But my view is, I think it's kind of pretentious to say that you've got the pilot and then episode one. It's like, the pilot's episode one, guys. Come on. It's episode. It's the pilot and it's episode one. Yeah. It was aired at the beginning of season one and then the next week this episode went. So, I'm sorry. Who cares? Yeah. It's, but, it's the but, second one we're going to watch. Yeah, but that's why I'm embracing the unofficial German television names of the episodes because that clarifies it. But know? actually, just thinking about Mark, it would be good to mention he has also done a Twin Peaks podcast. The Twin Peaks log. Yeah, yep. which is great. Mike has um, guested on it Yeah, because, it, because that was done um, in the lead up to the the revival series yep. and then led straight into that. Mm-hmm. So, um, And that was Mark with uh, watching it with uh, Becky, who was a first-time watcher. Right. Of Twin Peaks, so that was a really interesting episode. So uh, yeah, check yeah, that out. So listen to us first, and then go and listen to yeah. them. And also, I don't even know if they're up anymore. But on Chinstroke versus Spencer, we've done a fair amount of um, Twin Peaks related no, stuff. No, they're not. They're not. That was like that's that quite was a while years, ago. Okay. I mean, maybe I'll maybe I'll I'll, I'll re, re- our feed. Yeah, I'll repurpose yeah. some of that stuff there because I think I, I edited together like a Twin Peaks mega episode that was like yeah. all of the Twin Peaks stuff that we've done. That was quite a while um, ago. Though. Yeah. So yeah. I might I might I might. Uh, Pull that out the archives, mm. the archives, uh, as they say. Um, it's a good piece of objet d'art that I can uh, <laughs> that I can produce. Okay, but anyway, we're going to hit pause. We're going to watch the episode, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to tell you what we thought of it. Okay, see you soon. CSVP Combat. Player one, choose your character. Tired of film and television podcasts where the hosts exist in a blissful state of agreement? Player two, choose your character. While you're in luck. Punter. Round one. Fight. Allow me to introduce you to the Chinstroker versus Punter podcast, featuring two film and television fans from Birmingham, England, who enjoy their media in very different ways. But anyway, that brings us to the end of the plot of Blue Velvet. The plot. I mean, the main characters are two of the dullest main characters I have ever encountered in any film. So join us as we catch up on what we've been watching from our own very different perspectives. Double KO. Round two. Fight. You can find us at csvsp.libson.com. Also on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, all the places that podcasts can be found. Just really It's isn't. not visually striking. No. Just, just getting confirmation. It's just in English. That's the third time, though. I mean, am I, is this on? Okay, so we've just finished watching uh, episode two of season one of Twin Peaks. Still want to say Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. It's going to take a while. That muscle memory. Uh, traces to nowhere. Uh, so, Hannah, thoughts? It wasn't long enough. Um, I was absolutely gutted when the credits came. After having a feature-length pilot, it just felt it felt like one act. Well, we I, I think a big part of that is, and this is something that's, I think, really hitting me this rewatch already, is how much out of the real world and into the world of the show it takes you mm. to the point where it's almost startling when it ends because you're so absorbed and I don't yeah. I don't mean absorbed I mean this is part of it I don't mean absorbed in the sense of like 
really into the show and like, oh, what's going to happen next? Mm. But it's a kind of entrancement yeah. almost. It's you, you do just get enveloped in the world, don't you? Well, I think it's I think it's almost like when you, you know when you're listening to like really ambient music. I was just going to say then, it's sort of a combo of the really dreamy music, um, the sort of otherworldly. Um, sets, you know, like a room full of pine with deer hooves holding a rifle above the bed. And the sort of the, the, the sumptuousness of the cinematography yeah. and like sort of how beautiful all the actors are and all yeah. that. But it, it almost, almost reminds me of when... And the stillness of it, I think. Yeah, don't yeah. I think she realised that stuff is passing. And, well, and that's why when... And we get our first taste of it in this episode, when there are moments of horror, they're even more startling. Mm. Yeah. Because of the the fact that they're in these plush kind of nineteen fifties um, artificial fibred living rooms, yeah. you know, as opposed to dank cellars or yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, no, I just absolutely loved it, and it runs that fine balance of letting the story unfold organically and also moving things along to keep you intrigued. And also kind of not caring about the story as well. It's yeah. a really odd balance. You're just sort of getting to know the world of Twin Peaks. Yeah. Mm. Um, what about you? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's funny sort of talking about this critically because the show, it's it's like a an album that I really love. Mm. Um, but it has been a while since I've watched it. Uh, I'm still readjusting to seeing it in such good quality. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I've seen this episode of Twin Peaks, like many or most of the episodes of Twin Peaks, particularly the first season, um, more times than I could count. It's mm. the TV show that I've watched the most. Mm. Uh, I don't think there's any TV show that I've watched in its entirety as often as Twin Peaks. And it's assisted by how short the series is, really, yeah. compared yeah. to in its entirety. But I would say that maybe, if I, if I had to guess, I'd say I've probably watched the show through all the way, maybe 30 times. Mm. Um, but I've probably only watched it two or three times in non-dog shit quality. Yeah. So... It kind of feels, not like I'm seeing it for the first time, but it gives it a freshness, that and the fact that I haven't seen it for a while. And this is going to sound like I'm stating the obvious, but it's just fun to be reminded of just how good it is. Yeah. Just, just, I, uh, and, and that's a really, I realise that's an incredibly oversimplification of it. Yeah. But I was just watching it and I was just like, I like it's things that you like films, movies that you like that maybe has an element of nostalgia to it. Mm. There's always that, not fear that I'm not going to like it again, because I know it's good. I, I know the show's reputation. I know this isn't just me, you know, liking Goonies when I was 12. You know, yeah, I know yeah. it's not one of those kind of things. But um, watching it today, I was halfway through it, and I was like, yeah, this is just really good. It's Yeah, it is. It's, it's well executed. It's well written. It's well directed. It's completely unique. Mm. I mean, this will only be my second full rewatch. Well, no, sorry, third. Um, we did the last we, time we watched it. We didn't get all the way through. We stopped two episodes before the end. Yeah, but this episode. Yeah. Oh, you said you said second full rewatch. Okay. Yeah. All right, nerd. Oh no, no, sorry. I'm I'm just uh, okay. There's nothing wrong with oh, God. <laughs> speaking correctly. So we're not talking about episode numbering from here forward. I'm putting a moratorium on it. 
Okay. This is moratorium. No, I'm, I'm joking. I'm joking. <laughs> but someone's going to get the slaps if they talk about the numbering system again. Even if a listener brings it up. I don't care. I am the one that reads the feedback. I will edit appropriately. Okay. Um, Mark, don't mention it. <laughs> um, rewatching this episode this time and potentially what you were saying about the quality of it, um, like the actual physical picture quality, yeah. might be a reason for this. But We've I've, never watched it in this sort of level of definition yeah, before. Um, I There are so many details that I'm picking up on this time. <laughs> Little that, character things I've well, noticed. Just like noticing um, Cooper's ring on his pinky finger, yeah. which is a really unusual thing for an FBI agent to wear. Yeah. Um, noticing... Um, Ed and oh, what's Hawk. the Hawk? Um, do the little finger the down face boys. thing, yeah. Um, Cooper side eyeing Truman when he's talking to Josie, yeah, before his body language, exactly. Just, just really tiny, tiny things that, um, just stand out so much more, yeah. um, but in a good it, way, like, yeah. not, not in a it's being overacted. And also, just, you can just see it all. And, and that, and the, and this is the, the rewatch projectness of it all as well. Is the fact that you've seen the show one more time than you did the last time you watched it. Hmm. So that accumulated knowledge or and memory of the show, the solidification of your memory of the show, assists in knowing that because, and we talked about this a lot with Agents of Shield, because you're not having to concentrate as much on just the what's going on element of it, you can kind of enjoy the craft of the show a little bit and yeah. just it's a much less stressful experience because you know it's you you don't have it's a little bit like uh, the analogy I use a lot is like driving a car where when you learn to drive, you've got to learn two things. You've got to learn the mechanics of operating a vehicle and how the how the road works. Mm. Uh, but once you've figured out how the car works, you're, you're muscle memorying that element, and you can just put all of your thought into, uh, you know, what, you know what, what, what are you supposed to do at an island, you yeah. know, and that kind of stuff. And I think art and entertainment is like that as well, is the fact that you can, there's the element we talked a lot about with Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which is the knowing it's good element. So mm. you can you can switch off the critical part of your brain a little bit. Or the, the worry element. Yeah. You're like, oh, God. Is this going to go gonna off a cliff? Right? Or, yeah. yeah. You know, so you can just be watching a character or like, yeah, hey, this time I'm watching this scene I've seen before. I'm going to look at the set mm. or the props. You know, yeah. it, it just gives you – and I think that – I that, am taking in far more background detail this time for yeah. sure. Well, you can you can see it, the yeah. starters, yeah. you know. But, but I think also the richness of Twin Peaks as well is that it's a very dense series – in every sense, because mm. the world of Twin Peaks isn't the real world. Mm. It's this artificial creation. It's not like a modern TV show where they'll film on location or they'll just grab sets, stuff from here. Everything mm. in Twin Peaks is artificial. Mm. So if it's there, it's there for a reason. It's been designed. It's been ordained that it needs to be there. Mm. So there's probably some meaning to it. But even even the stuff that really doesn't have a lot of meaning, like, you know, just the start of the episode, how Cooper manages to basically encounter three people with their mouths full of donut before he actually gets to, you know, start his day properly. And it's fun just... because what they're doing there 
is that they're achieving a number of things because they need Cooper to deliver loads of exposition. Yeah. So by having the other characters unable to speak, they can do that. But they're having fun with it and creating this interesting visual and some weird humour with it. And they're feeding into the show's obsession with food I think everyone's been where Harry is as well, where someone has asked them something or started talking to them just as they've taken a massive mouthful of something. And it shows the dichotomy of Cooper and his kind of outside world because you're – Cooper is portrayed almost like an alien. Yeah. Because we talked about how like pl- how Pleasantville and um WandaVisiony uh, and Truman Show Twin Peaks is that it almost feels like it exists in its own little bu- bubble universe. I'm never gonna stop. It's not One Direction. I know. And um I don't know why it is. Every time you say <laughs> it, I think of Harry Styles. And and f- for Coop Cooper almost operates at a different wavelength because you get, they go into the station, and Andy and um, I can't remember her name, Lucy mm. are eating, and then they go into you see like um, Truman like devouring this like comedically the way, the big way Danish. He doesn't even like take a bite of it. Yeah, he just forces it in. Yeah, um, and you know it's the start of the day. They're enjoying it, but Cooper's already, you know, his synapses are firing, and you, you know, yeah. So it's just. It shows you how different he's got he is. a caffeine high. Basically, he's come in full of black coffee. Yeah, he's got bacon in his go. veins. Yeah, you know. Yeah, but um, well, let's get into it. Let's. let's I mean, we're, we're already talking about the episode. Oh my gosh, Audrey sitting down to talk to Cooper at breakfast is like the conversations that you have with a toddler. You know, when she's going on about do your palms itch, and you know. Like she's talking about physical things on your body. It's like when Chloe asks you if Do you like bread? Yeah. <laughs> I've got arms. Why, why do dogs have black lips? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like it's just random, so random. Um, and as much as he seems quite enamored with her, and like there's obviously he he appreciates that she's a beautiful girl, but equally. I think you can tell he's kind of humouring her a little bit. Yeah. Um, and, and, and also, yeah. I mean, there's just there's just a little bit of classic Twin Peaks weirdness going on there yeah, as well, isn't it? Yeah. It's just the idea that she's the little sheltered rich girl who's never yeah. been out, and Cooper represents this kind of exotic, the big dangerous uh, world, the, the other. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And um, her ticket to interesting. Yeah, and and one of the influences that on Twin Peaks, um, I think particularly for Mark Frost were things like um, the Hardy Boys and Nancy Drew, mm. these kind of like young adults, teen sleuths. Yeah. I mean, Blue Velvet kind of presented the dark sort of underbelly of that a little yeah. bit. And I think that Audrey, because they talked about for a while there was going to be an Audrey spin-off show. Right. And it was going to be like a Nancy Drew kind of like teen sleuth, kind of almost like, um, oh, what was that TV show in the 2000s? With um, oh, um, with Kristen Bell, yeah, um, yeah, I know the word and I can't think what the fuck it's called. Yeah, it's the girl's name, isn't it? Yeah, that's gonna bug me. Would you look it up? Yeah, it's um, it was kind of like a slightly Whedon esque sort of show, wasn't it? Yeah, um, and I think that they that that was what they were toying with the idea that Audrey was going to be this kind of like teen detective, Veronica Mars. Mars, that's it. And you know, and it's a little bit like Jeffrey Beaumont in Blue Velvet as well. The idea of young people wanting 
to understand the adult world uh, but and being fascinated but kind of horrified by it at the same time. Like the scenes in Blue Velvet when um, Jeffrey is hidden in the wardrobe and he's watching all of the horrible, weird sex stuff go on between Dennis Hopper and Isabella Rossellini. It's almost as though like a, it's like a child he, overhearing his, his parents having sex and not knowing what they're doing and imagining all this crazy stuff of what it mm. might actually be. And what you see in Blue Velvet is like an actualization of these kind of this fascination re- repulsion mm. combination that, that yeah. chil- I think all children experience when they're discovering their own sexuality. Mm. And I think that that's what you see with Audrey is this kind of pure um, adolescent onset, probably slightly retarded onset adolescence because she's been so sheltered mm. from the world. And Cooper represents this and has probably represents some sense of, um, you know, sexual awakening or kind of desire for worldliness or whatever mm. you want to call it. Um, but she doesn't have the emotional maturity to kind of express it or understand what it means. To me, he is the physical representation of the music she likes. Yeah. You know, that sort of slow, sexy jazz yeah. kind of, you know. Which weirdly everybody in Twin Peaks seems to like. I know. Um, and fair play to them; it's great music. But I just I question this um, this <coughs> kind of where are the boy bands? Yeah, this Pacific Northwest. I mean, they would probably listen to country music mm. predominantly, or you know, um, hair metal probably oh, in nineteen eighty nine. Look back, just keep your eyes. <laughs> I said, you're holding back. I said, shut up and dance. I mean, I, I would imagine that. Um, <laughs> That the jukebox is in Twin Peaks, the real jukebox. I mean, it would be Garth Brooks. Yeah. You know, and... Um, Sweet home Alabama. Yeah, it would be Elena's Skinner. Uh, you know, you'd probably have um, Poison and Motley Crue, probably, as well, because you've got your truckers and you've got all... Yeah. It's, it's pre-grunge, although, you know, that part of the Dick world... Lifford. Yeah, it'd be all that. Awesome sugar, I in the name of love. <laughs> <laughs> we could be a dumbass. <laughs> um, but okay, so so we open up. Let's do this. Um, well, you know, we're, we're we're twenty minutes in, and we haven't even got really got into the episode yet. Um, I, I mentioned before about how um, there was almost a kind of mission statement. The pilot was like the mission statement. <laughs> what? <laughs> I wish you could have seen your face. What? The label. <laughs> I know what I'm doing, darling. I know what I'm doing. I've said we should do this as a video podcast. Um, you get more You get more viewers. We, we get some. You don't get any viewers when it's audio because they can't see you. Um, but no um, needs to see this. Hey, Hannah, in the name of love, <laughs> let's get this going. For goodness sake. Um, okay. So I mentioned the whole um, idea that the pilot was like a dial guide for all of the filmmakers that would come afterwards. And it, there was a story about, I don't think this is apocryphal, but there was a story about how TV was shot a certain way in the late 80s and the early 90s. I've spoke about this a lot when we were covering the X-Files, but the fact that it was shot really flat. You know, you you look at even shows I really like, Star Trek Next Generation, it looks like they're on a set and they've got a load of lights mm. blaring at them, you know. And um, Twin Peaks didn't take that approach. You took a stylized approach. That there was a color palette. You know, they mm. put a lot of red filters on, and you can really see the redness yeah, in, in this episode as well. I mean, there's a lot of other colors mm. in the frame, 
but the light that's hitting the faces is red and it gives it's everyone very a... full colours. Like it gives them a, a pinkish hue. Yeah, believe. but like from a, like I'm coming from a design point of view, mm. very full colours, forest green, deep red, like you're not going for light, wishy-washy colours, yeah. you're going for very dense colour. Well, they're not going for, for realism. It's it's no. a, it's a it's a designed mm. look, yeah. And where apparently when they um, slightly Christmassy, yeah, such a Christmassy. Apparently, when they submitted the film to the labs, they had to warn them because they were worried that they would correct it, color correct it, because mm. it was so um, untypical of how television looked mm. that they were concerned that it would be. Think it was a fault. It was an error, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I think that that speaks to one of the ways that this show was revolutionary. Because I mean, Twin Peaks was very popular for a really short period of time, and it was it was the candle that burnt twice as bright, you know. Yeah. Um, and I think that it was one of those things where I think it was popular because it was so different, but I think it was impossible to sustain that. Yeah. Um, over a long period of time, particularly when you've got people like David Lynch, who David Lynch isn't a showrunner. You know, he's the, he's a creative guy who, you know, he was probably on to thinking about his next project by the time they were even shooting the yeah. show. You know, well, he's he's not looking at it from a economical point of view. He's he's not thinking how are we going to get another season. No, he's thinking I'm going to go and shoot Wild at Heart now. You it's know, at you know, it, it's he's very much. Um, driven with wind blows him. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that you, when, when the episode opens, you get Dwayne Dunham, uh, who I think does a great job of directing this episode oh, yeah. as well. Uh, and, and in some ways, I think that this episode feels even more like Twin Peaks than the pilot because Lynch introduced the visual style. And this episode, obviously, it's written by Mark Frost and David Lynch and produced by them. So they're very creatively involved and they were both on set you know they were there when they were making this and but what what Dunham does is he brings some more slightly more conventional television style in there like you know establishing shot two shot over the shoulder reaction shot as opposed to just static cameras although he does still does more of than that than you would have got in an episode of Dallas or you know any of this, this show's peers and I think that that improves it because I think that Twin Peaks is at its most powerful when it is dichotomous, when it is doing all this weird shit, but at the same time still standing toe-to-toe with the slick television of the era and all of the other shows that were on around this time. So I think that this episode in some ways is even more sophisticated than the pilot because it walks that line. It manages to cohabit. You know the art film sensibility of of David Lynch, and just so it feels like a stepping stone to shows like The X Files, yeah, where they would they like a show like The X Files would bring in even more film techniques, um, but would also use kind of Twin Peaks stylistic stuff as like a Trojan horse mm. to try and get all of that sort of stuff across. So you see the camera panning through the wooden walls. And it's like what you were speaking to earlier on, this idea of um, 
everything in Twin Peaks is informed by nature. Mm. Um, you know, th- th- there's a really complex relationship between interior and exterior, mm. you know, right down to the fact that so much of the – and you see this in New Zealand well, as well. The and, fact that Leo Johnson, half his house is outside. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. the, the you know, are the woods encroaching on his house or is his house – it's this kind yeah. of weird – it's a liminal space. Yes, <laughs> you know, absolutely. Yep. So we see Cooper upside down, and this is one of the great. I almost feel like if you wanted to show somebody what Twin Peaks was, you could show them the opening yeah, scene because no. you've mm-hmm. got you've got Cooper delivering all this exposition to Diane, and again, the the the, the mechanic of Diane as an expositional device is really clever, and he's laying out all of these things about you know basically previously on because on Twin Peaks, but you also get the fact that he's hanging upside down while he's doing yeah. this, you know, which is kind of weird. And kudos to him, he like you know, there's no stunt double, he's doing that. Yeah, yeah, and and he um he oscillates between the sublime and the ridiculous so well. You know, we talked in the pilot about how he'll go from gleefully asking about the trees to requesting toxicology reports, yeah. like and it's it. it, it the line that Ben Horn says later on in the episode, I almost feel is like a kind of echo of Cooper when Piper Laurie's character says to him, is this business or pleasure? And he's like, it's all the same to me, sweetheart. Yeah. And Cooper's like that. Cooper. Truly. There's no difference. He does. Yeah. The, the joy he takes looking at ducks yeah. is the same joy he takes reading a post-mortem Report. It's or the same. Solving a crime. Or, yeah, yeah. You know. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't take pleasure in the macabre no, of it. Yeah. I don't mean that. No, no. Um, but it's the same thing. So you'll but see he, him. He kind of finds he finds the joy in his life. You know, the the delicious piece of pie, the coffee as black as midnight on a moonless yeah. night. Yeah, it, it it's all about, and you know, we should all live like that. You know, enjoy that cup of coffee. But. There is a darkness to it. You can't help yeah. but think, and this might be a little bit of meta knowledge, knowing it's David Lynch, that thou protesteth too much. It's almost like an element of what's he, what's the defense mechanism hiding? You know, well, everyone's like that. No, 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 no. I know, but in the real world, but, yeah. it, but within the internal logic of Twin Peaks, oh yeah, absolutely. Where it's a show about secrets, mm. and it's a show about the. You know, Laura Palmer's face. What is he hiding from it? Yeah, what what we show the world. I I don't say this often when it comes to stuff that I would cover, but Twin Peaks was a very heavily marketed and merchandise show for a really short period of time. So there's not a lot of stuff. There's not a lot of books and all that, but there was a lot in a really short period of time. Mm. So in a space of about four or five months when the show was at its peak, you had The Secret Diary of Laura Palmer written by Jennifer Lynch. You had the autobiography of, of uh, Agent Cooper, My Life, My Tapes, written by Scott Frost. And you learn that Cooper's actually been keeping recordings since he was a child. Right. And there was the Access Guide to Twin Peaks, which is a fake tourist guide written by David Lynch and Mark Frost. There was the board game, um, and there were the soundtrack albums, and that was it. Right. That was all of the official material that was released to Twin Peaks during its original run. But that all came out during a short period of time. So it felt like we were getting slammed with merchandising. But then it stopped because the show's popularity started to wane. And we'll get into why that was, you know, when we cover it off. Mm. But I would recommend to anyone who who's into the show to consume all of that material because mm. it is such an integral part of the show. Like Laura's Diary is was completely written when they wrote the pilot. They, they got David yeah. Lynch got his daughter to write it. 
He gave her insights into the show. And I remember reading it. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that when we get to in a couple of episodes time, but, and it was designed to be read at a certain point in the show and it was designed right. to be part of the experience. And I remember it coming out and I remember it was summer and I was at college and I remember sitting out in the field um, behind the college, just smoking a cigarette, reading the secret diary of Laura Palmer. And I looked around and I am not exaggerating. Every third or fourth person was reading the secret diary of Laura Palmer. It was that much of a phenomena. And it really adds to the show because I remember reading it and it starts off and it's just like this diary of a, of a 13-year-old girl and it's just yeah. completely normal. And then at the end of the first chapter, about 20 pages in, she just says, I hope Bob doesn't come tonight. And mm. I was reading that and I'm like, is that, is that, is that Bobby Briggs? Yeah. And um, I was like, huh. And, then, and even the pages that are ripped out, like you'll get to it and there'll be a blank page and it'll say page ripped out. Oh. And... In the show, whenever they're looking for the diary and they've got the ripped out pages relative to the real diary, that's where they are. So they obviously, you know, got wrote the whole thing. Mm. And in the show, and they stick to it. And and Cooper's diary is like that as well. It's really chilling because it's it's him recording. He it starts with him on his like his think about his twelfth birthday, and he gets bought a reel to reel tape recorder, mm. and the book is just an annotations of that, and. He's just talking, and it's just always fun, quirky Cooper stuff. And about a third of the way through, he's like, I looked out my window, and the man with no face was sat out there again tonight. Oh, and you're like, holy <laughs> shit. And, this is, and again, as it goes on, there's this implication that stuff's been going on with Cooper his whole life. Yeah. And, um, we'll, again, we'll get into that more as the show goes on, and particularly, yeah. you know, in the later ones. But, uh, but yeah, so, I mean, the... the You'll get, for again, to, to get back to it, Cooper hanging upside down talking about his uh, case, but then he'll be like, one thing's been bothering me, and I say this not just as, as a federal agent but as a man, what happened between Marilyn Monroe and the Kennedys and who yeah. really pulled the trigger on JFK? Yeah. And it's as though all of this stuff is running around his mind and it's there's no differentiation. No. It's all part of his inquiring. It's a wee bit ADHD, you know. Yeah, that, yeah. That random thought popping in. It's <laughs> like, by the way, what happened there? <laughs> yeah, that's right. And why do I why do I hear One Direction every time that Mike? <laughs> um, so we see him go for his morning coffee, uh, freshly squeezed, and I love the fact that uh, this is something that I've always freshly remembered. Freshly squeezed morning coffee. Uh, no, no, uh, the uh, the. <laughs> Um, but he also has his drink, which is freshly squeezed. But I always remember the fact that the piece of music on the soundtrack album that's playing during that scene is called Freshly Squeezed um, because of, obviously, the, the line yeah. when Audrey walks in. Um, so we see, um, we get that scene that you mentioned earlier on between him and Audrey. Yeah. Um, and we see him go to the um, the police station and everybody's eating. Mm-hmm. I love the way... <laughs> And this is another one of those rewatch things where, because he says he delivers all the exposition, and then he's like, "Harry, I desperately need to urinate." But if you watch that scene, when Cooper's delivering all the exposition, you can see him wincing occasionally <laughs> because he's obviously just trying to get it all out before. <laughs> before yeah. But you don't notice it when you first watch it because you don't know he needs a piss. Yeah. But when you rewatch it, you're like, "Oh, look, he needs a piss." <laughs> like, just a nice little touch. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, this show is the rewatch project, and I think that. You know, there's a there's a definite rewatchability. Oh, absolutely. Um, at play here. Yeah. 
they go and see Doc Hayward, right? like the um, the autopsy, and they're yeah. waiting for the the, the tox reports. Yeah. And the photograph of Laura of the corpse, you know, of like her sort of you know framed with the plastic. Yeah. That's a very iconic picture as well. Yeah. And the thing that, that's really hitting me as well is how many sort of almost iconic talismans there are of this. You know, like I say, you've got the broken heart, you've got the the, the, the coconut that, yeah. that Jacoby uses. I like, like the fact that when he opens the folder, like he puts his arm on the picture because he just, it's too hard for him to look at. Yeah. It's too painful. Well, he said he couldn't do the autopsy. No. Yeah, you know, even though he was there, he couldn't physically cut into yeah. her. Or but it's the things. idea that he delivered her. Yeah, you know, the idea of delivering a baby and then it's no. just it's unthinkable, isn't it? No. And and I think that it's great that uh, and it's it's weird to think that you know that's Mark Frost's dad. Mm. You know, and he's so great. Yeah, he, really he brings like a real humanity. And there are, I mean, there there are kind of earthly characters and unearthly characters in Twin Peaks. And I spoke before about how. It's when you get those characters interacting with each other when you get the weirdness. Like that scene later on in the um, the drugstore between Norma and Nadine. And yeah. Nadine's just going, he's just being full lynchy and talking about cotton balls and all this kind of stuff. But Norma is, she's one of the characters like Doc Hayward, where yeah. she's a very normal, traditional conservative she's TV character. looking like, what the fuck is going and on? And the way that they interact. And it's a little bit like later on in the episode, although... Cooper is is an unnatural character. Like when um, Margaret, the log lady, tells him, asks him mm. to ask her log, and he can't bring himself to ask the question. Mm. And she walks off, and him and uh, Cooper and Truman sort of look at each other, but then get back to their food. They don't mm. comment on like, "Well, that was weird." No, you know, and that's the that's what's weird. But I th- I think their friendship has got to the point where they don't need to comment. They kind of. So like so quickly symbiotic in that, um, that like they're a double act. Well, it, and it, it's interesting you mentioned that because, with one exception, there's one point in the series where um, in the original two seasons where it jumps forward a couple of days, but every episode of Twin Peaks is meant to represent one day. Mm. So every episode starts in the morning, and ends at night, mm-hmm. and it's easy to forget that because of TV logic. That There's a point in the series where it's halfway through the second season, you've got loads of episodes and they've been through all these adventures and a character says to Cooper, how long have you been in Twin Peaks? And he's like, oh, uh, 11 days. Mm. And you're like, what, what, what? <laughs> it just doesn't seem to make any sense. Whereas like, you know, so even with things like Cooper and Truman already having a shorthand, they've only known each other for 24 hours. Yeah, yeah, you know, exactly. And, and it, I mean, obviously that makes no sense and the show doesn't try to make sense. I mean, this is what, and I know you always make fun of me for this, but this is the very essence of verisimilitude. Because verisimilitude isn't about being realistic. It's about being consistent with one's own established logic. And Twin Peaks is very good at that. Yeah. Twin Peaks doesn't make sense when overlaid with the context of the real world. But Twin Peaks but makes absolute... No, yeah, well, but, but Twin Peaks makes absolute sense when measured against the context of itself. Mm, You know, it rarely does anything but breaks its own rules. Mm. You see the famous picture of the corpse. You get the feeling as well that the show is trying to set Leo up as the main suspect at this point. Oh, absolutely, when it cuts to him from, what was the line they said, um, 
they were like, oh, you know, uh, the, the person who did this must be the killer. And yeah, then it like, and cuts to, like, yeah, yeah, da, da, da. Yeah, they're still sort of signposting <laughs> yeah. this. We see James being in, in being interviewed by Cooper. And it's interesting how if you contrast his interrogation with Bobby's, yeah. like he calls Cooper sir yep. throughout the, all of, the whole of it and he's really respectful. And you just believe him. Yeah. Like when they're like, have you ever done, have you done drugs? And he's like, no, no, I haven't. And I tried to get her to stop and she did mm. for a while. And Cooper's like, well, why does she start again? And you can see there's no doubt in Cooper's mind no. that James is telling the truth. But you can see the moment where James decides, I'm just going to tell them everything I know. Yeah. Um, you know, when he's sort of deciding whether to say it's his motorbike or not. Well, he, he's kind of got the maturity in the sense that with Donna, you get the feeling that Donna Donna's trying to protect, you know, somebody finding out that somebody was cheating on someone. Yeah. Whereas you get the feeling that James knows that this it's is bigger so than that. so far past that. Yeah. yeah. And I think that was because he had more interactions with Laura's dark side than Donna did. Mm. Um, yeah. So he he kind of has already looked into the darkness a little bit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So he watches the video and admits that he shot it. He talks about how he last saw Laura at the lights at Sparkwood and 21. And when I talk about the iconic appeal of Twin Peaks, just the road names, like I was in a band called Sparkwood and 21. Of course you were. Um, <laughs> because I just... Obviously, I was a Twin Peaks fan. I'm surprised that you were not in a band called Verisimilitude. <laughs> no, that, that'll be my jazz years. <laughs> I've yet to master jazz, so I'll... Uh... I'm going to put it on your gravestone if you don't. <laughs> no, that'll be master jazz and the Verisimilitudes. <laughs> I'll be master jazz. In all, ser- well, not in all seriousness, in relative seriousness, it's just the, the naming of things, Sparkwood and 21. I mean, that's just a great sounding... It's just a nice thing to say, you know. Yeah. So we get the flashback of Laura giving the heart to James. And I love the fact that because it's obviously James having the flashback, it's this kind of idyllic, girly-voiced Laura. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, of course, to James, that's what Donna is. Uh, sorry, that's, to, that's what Laura is, you know. Yeah, yeah. And part of that as well is the idea of Laura, the idea of Marilyn Monroe, and the idea of a beautiful woman who doesn't kind of have agency over herself is she's only what people want her to be. She's only how people, men, view her. And Then you see that contradiction, you know, at the end of the episode with her voice on the tape to Dr. Jacoby and how different she sounds in that and how she's saying... She's making fun of James. James is dull and, oh, God, you know. But she's probably a chameleon herself and she's different things for different people. Of course she is. She... She doesn't know herself. She's being abused by somebody. She's 17. Yeah. She's she's going to be what she thinks other people want her to be. Yeah. She's going to listen to her boyfriend's bands. Yeah, of course. You know, and do all that stuff that teenagers do. We've all been there. Yeah. And so we see Bobby, we learn through um, the scene in the prison cell that Mike and Bobby are connected to Leo. And I think one of the things that this episode does really well is it starts making connections between all the people in the town mm. you start to see the um the incestuousness um and how everybody's connected and i mean also i mean on the opening credits of twin peaks it says that the town is 51,321 um the studio made them change it to that because originally it was 5,300 wow. and so they've gotten to move the apostrophe and in the Lynch and Frost written access guide book, they actually have a whole chapter about how 
the typographer made a mistake with the placement of the comma. That was their way of saying "screw you" to the um, yeah, yeah. to the studio. But really, Twin Peaks is meant to be a town of around five thousand people, and that makes sense. So you, there would be these connections. Yeah. I mean, that's that is not a lot of people. No. Five thousand. I mean, that's that's like no. a. Good, there are large schools that have five thousand students. Yeah, it it wouldn't be beyond the realm of of coincidence for yeah. for for people to have those relationships. You get an odd scene where, and there's no um, perspective or point of view assigned to it. Where randomly you get this interstitial shot of the video of Donna and Laura mm. dancing, like all young girls do, I, as you point I, 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 out. <laughs> Off home to have a pillow fight before they have a sleepover. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Talk about boys. Yeah. Um, but they, um, and you hear Laura say, "Help me." Yeah. Over it, and that's a kind of that's ne- that's, a, that's never explained. That's no. a purely um, artistic little moment. Yeah. Um, I don't think I'd noticed that the first time around, even though it's like completely yeah, overt. Yeah. I, it, well, no, it doesn't. It is somewhat it subliminal. Sort of glossed over me the first time. Mm. Yeah, and it's not like it's during one of the scenes when they're watching the videos. It's yeah. just it just appears it's just there. And, and it just yeah. comes and goes. And um, like a thief in the night. There's some small scenes in this that I really enjoy, and it makes me think that. And you get this a lot more in season two. That one of the things about Twin Peaks that I like is. It almost sometimes feels like a collection of sketches. Mm. Like there is a narrative and there is a storyline, but a lot of the scenes just feel like these little sort of sketches of town life. Mm. Like almost like, um, have you ever watched Portlandia? No. You know, it's like a show where it's a town and you'll just have like... Sketches. Sketches of a school or... Uh, the town hall, it does sometimes feel like that. And you'll get scenes like, um, I mean, this is jumping ahead a little bit, but I think there's a really lovely scene between Donna and her mum, which is kind of the, it's like the eye of the duck scene in this episode in some ways, because Donna comes in and talks to her mum, and her mum's worried about her. She's asking her how she's doing, and Donna's basically like, look, I'm really confused. I don't know how to kind of process what's been happening. Mm. I'm trying to understand my own feelings. And she's and Donna says, kind of one of the most important lines of dialogue in the whole show. She says, It's like I'm having the most beautiful dream and the most terrible nightmare all at once. Mm. And that's kind of what Twin Peaks is. Yeah. It's a beautiful dream and it's a terrible nightmare. Yeah. And um and it's a, again, it's a really I'm really surprised by how much I'm enjoying Lara Flynn Boyle in this rewatch. I think she's really good at playing the kind of um that really specific style of not realistic and kind of gee whiz 50s, mm. but with a slightly modern sensibility kind of tightrope mm. that David Lynch is. I think she's really, she's better than James Marshall. I think J- James Marshall's character is meant to walk that tightrope as well. And I like James Marshall, but I don't think he's quite got the chops mm. to navigate that as well as she does. And when she talks about how, she's realised that she's fallen in love with James and she's sad that her friends died, but she's really happy and she doesn't understand how to process that guilt and the complexity of that feeling. And I think there's something really relatable about that, that moment in your childhood when you realise that life isn't simple Mm. uh, and that relationships aren't simple. No, yeah. That you can hate somebody and love them at the same time, you know? And you've got to get into situations where 
you're not proud of the actions you've taken, but you're also really happy that the outcome is what it is. And yet you feel guilty, but you kind of also know that you haven't done anything wrong. And, yeah. you know, yeah. how, how do you process that? Mm. And I think that people often reduce Twin Peaks to being that weird show. But, but I think that there is a lot of humanity in it. Mm. And I think that it's a little bit like when people talk about Blade Runner being a really cold film. Um, it isn't. It's an incredibly human film. Yeah. But it's examining humanity through a, a detached perspective. Yeah. And that doesn't mean it's that it's a very emotional film. It's a I really emotional say. film. Yeah. But it isn't people shouting and crying and screaming. It's not no. people expressing emotion. It's an exploration of emotion. It's got a lot of sexy saxophone. <laughs> I think you mean sexy phone. Is the, uh, you know, there's a more economical way of saying that. Yeah. Than, uh, it's like the. Um, <laughs> it reminds me of that line in Buffy when uh, Willow's like, um, you know, I, I think I can tell that she's a lesbian. And she's like, it's like I've got some kind of like lesbodar. And Buffy's like, you know, there's a shorter way of saying that. <laughs> and um, so Donna talks to her mum about James. Um, Cooper meets Big Ed Hurley, James's uncle, for the first time, um, and we get more. Um, this episode really solidifies the the food fetish, mm. fetish. Sorry, because you've got, of course, Cooper in the hotel room early. Uh, sorry, in the hotel bar earlier on, doing the. Um, this is excuse me, a damn fine cup of coffee. Yeah. You know, damn fine cup of coffee is the beam me up, Scotty of of, of Twin Peaks, yeah. and you've got the fastidious order, the kind of like you know. I want bacon super crispy, you know. Yeah. Uh, I know how hard it is on the arteries, almost as hard as I want those eggs. You know, yeah. it's kind of like, and, and that whole thing. And then you've got the, um, we'll get to it shortly, the fish in the percolator scene. It is very much, um, when people think of Twin Peaks and they like damn fine cherry pie and coffee, a lot of that comes from this episode. The track is laid in the pilot. Yeah. But this is the episode that I think really brought those elements it's, of it's the show identifying the style of yeah. the show yeah it is well it's as though they did the pilot and then they had time to reflect and this episode's like really like okay let's drive this shit it's home double down yeah, yeah 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 um so we see um cooper on the phone to albert uh, and he's like there's a cherry pie he's like if you come through uh louis fork lamp lighter uh, in. in and that's uh, so, oh you see you're uh my kind of people and um i can't wait to see albert yeah, it's okay. Um, we get a reference to the Bookhouse Boys, uh, who we'll learn more about more about in the next episode. It says he was on his stakeout. Yep. Yeah. Cooper lets Mike and Bobby go. I love the fact that Cooper has finished making his whistle. This, this was a, something I noticed on this rewatch. That that whistle element of it. The fact that, you know, obviously he was whittling it in the stakeout in the first episode, but he's, mm. you know, he's finally done it here. And I like the lineup from Truman, where Cooper's like, come on, you know, we've got places to go, people to see. And uh, Truman says, uh, I, I feel like I need to start studying medicine. Yeah. Because uh, I'm starting to feel like, I like Dr. Watson. Yeah. And But I like the fact that uh, Cooper's amused by that. And there's nothing passive aggressive about no. Truman saying that. He's... You get the feeling that he's just fine with that. I I just love their relationship. It so quickly um, turns congenial. And just like I said before, they've got this shorthand, this 
symbiotic relationship so quickly. And there's no toxic masculinity no. there at all. There's no... They really um, appreciate each other. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and there isn't anything kind of awkward no. about it. No. Like there's a really beautiful scene. And I, I always remember watching this with... Um, my friend Dan, who you know, Hannah, obviously, uh, our, our listeners do not know. Uh, I Dan was one of the people that I convinced to watch Twin Peaks, mm. so I watched it with him. And there's a scene in the second season, I, I won't go into spe- uh, specific details, because although we're not avoiding spoilers here, I'm going to avoid them whenever yeah, we're we're possible. But, but there's a scene where something traumatic happens to Truman, mm. and um, they hug, and it's this really lovely... Kind of, and I remember at the time thinking, you didn't see a lot of men hug in 1990. Yeah. Uh, and that sounds like a ridiculous thing to say, but it's true. One thing I and remember. I, and I, I remember, sorry, just to finish off the story, and I remember Dan, who I was watching it with, just going, oh. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, yeah, because it was, it was so rare to yeah. just see men kind of celebrating their friendship. One thing I really love about it is, you know, Cooper had that conversation at the very start saying, this is like I have to be in charge. You have to be okay with that. Blah blah blah. Like stating yeah, how it was going to be going forward. But he, he, like for me, Truman is still very much in charge of his department. Yeah. You know, like Cooper is technically in charge of the investigation and is running what they need to do and who they need to see and da da da. But he's not treating Truman like a subordinate. And there is a moment later in the show where Truman actually asserts himself and Cooper does back down. Cooper's like, this is your town. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm i sorry. I, I don't want to piss upstream, you know. Yeah. And, yeah. and he does let him yeah. do that, you know. Yeah. And you get the feeling that, that Truman knows that from the beginning. Yeah. And I think they know that they need each other to get the answers. Yeah. Well, Truman knows that he's police department isn't equipped Not for a murder investigation it, no. you know so they need i mean they just need the they administrative need the support yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know, to be able to do it yeah cooper we get the whole fish in the percolator sequence mm. basically and one of the things that's wonderful about particularly season one of Twin i love Peaks, the fact they don't spit it out yeah yeah it's too late they've kind yeah. of committed but season one of twin peaks is every episode is oh yeah this scene Oh yeah, this and this is why I say it's a bit like sketches. Is that each scene is kind of like its own movie? Yeah, you know, you'll have these Expected sequences to come down, and they're long scenes. And I think this is maybe one of the reasons why you were surprised when the episode ended. Is we've been programmed that scenes in TV shows are about two and a half minutes long, and you move on to the next one. So, you know, if you're listening to an album and the songs are long. You're surprised when the album finishes after only five songs because you're used to albums having ten songs. Yeah, and it's like that. We've we, we've just watched. We've been watching a lot of X Files, which is a very conventionally structured TV show. Yeah. We've watched Agents of Shield, very conventionally structured TV yeah. show. Whereas like Twin Peaks will have scenes that run for like nine, ten minutes. Yeah. Um. So your mind is thinking, I've it's only got to be more. <laughs> we've only been in like six rooms. Yeah. I'm used to 15 rooms. Yeah. yeah <laughs> exactly. And you, and it is a subconscious thing, I think. Yeah. You know? Um and but but this this sequence, for example, it's got a whole so they'll come in, that they meet Josie, so you get a bit of exposition, you meet Pete, um, and you get a sense of the environment. 
you get a little bit more fun with coffee, you know, the as black as the, you know, moonless night, all that stuff. And I you, remember you saying that to me the first time we had coffee together. Absolutely, you've got to. And but then you Nerd. get, but then you get all the stuff with Josie's phone call in the other room to Catherine Martel mm-hmm. and all of the kind of um, you know uh, JR Ewing stuff with with Ben. Um, and I and you get some really fun bits with Cooper, like when she's like, "What well, is shenanigans?" and mm. he's like, uh, "Nonsense." Uh, was it a, a a, a cruel or tre- treacherous trick. You know, his, yeah. his, his definition is just this wonderful piece of writing. Yeah. And, um, but you also get Cooper side-eyeing Truman and being like, how long have you been in love with her? Body language Sussing, and all that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you get the fish in the percolator reveal in the comedy. And, and it's just this wonderful seven minutes of filmmaking, yeah. you know, that, yeah. that achieves some expositional goals, yeah. but is entertaining and amusing and kind of weird and unique and, Reminds you of what the tone of the show is, um, and that's just so complex but yeah. effortless. Yeah, you know, and and yeah, it's not like um, it's not like other shows, and um, so I mean, Ben, I've got a note here as well. Is um, Ben Horn is Jr. Uh, Ewing, and I love, and this is a theme of the show, how Ben Horn just gets turned on by treachery. Oh, he really like, does. Like he's lost interest in in Catherine in the scene. He's got what he's wanted, yeah. but as soon as she's like, right, let's burn the mill, he's kind of like, and he's like, he starts loosening his tie again. Oh. He's like, oh yeah, like I'm yeah. like. You know. It's when he starts on the toes, I'm like, oh yeah, God. yeah. Uh, but it's just the fact that he just he just loves being being a villain. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and um, he gets the right job on. He does well, Ben Horn. You know, yeah. it's it's all it's there the in the horn. name, isn't it? And um, so Donna goes to see Sarah and she has a vision. And I think it's interesting because although you do get a glimpse of um, an accidental glimpse of uh, Frank Silver as Bob in the mirror in the pilot, mm. it's interesting that the first proper view of Bob that we get in Twin Peaks isn't in an episode directed by David Lynch. Yeah. When you consider how Bob is just in some so ways, the, he's the quintessential Lynchian creation mm-hmm. in, in a lot yeah. of ways. You know, <laughs> he's kind of the. Um, yeah, he's the Darth Vader of yeah. uh, of Twin Peaks in many ways, and um, and it's a startling image as well because it's just he's there in the living room and there's no, it's not a jump scare. It reminds me a little well, bit of like he's not there in the living room. He's crouched down at the end of a bed. Yeah, yeah, but she see well, she sees the vision yeah. of him while she's in the living room, mm. but. It almost feels a little bit like uh, J horror, like Japanese horror, where they don't go for the jump scares; they go for kind of horrifying incongruity. Yeah. You know, it's the idea of, it's not the idea of something jumping out at you. It's the idea of just looking around a space that feels familiar and safe and something that doesn't belong there suddenly just being there. Yeah. You know, and that's a very startling, well, that's, it's Lynchian. When people talk about Lynchian things, one of the things that they're talking about in the sort of visual arsenal is that, yeah. you know, is just, yeah. whoa, what's that doing there? Yeah. You know, you think about the woman behind the diner in Mulholland Drive and, like, stuff like that. Oh, it's yeah. really, you know, it's startling. It's not horrifying or scary. It's startling, yeah. you know. and Because um, he's not he's not pulling any kind of crazy face. No. He's just looking. He just shouldn't be there. Yeah. yeah. You know, um, and so we see the one-armed man um, and we see Hawk take an interest in him. And follow him, and he goes into the um, it's the oxygen and intensive care ward of the hospital, and it just vanishes. So there's a bit of a mystery going on there. Um, 
And, and, and it's interesting as well, the idea of the one-armed man. I mean, that's very much um, feels like it has to be a throwback to the old TV series, uh, The Fugitive. Yeah. You know, and The Fugitive itself was a show where closure and resolution was resisted. The very, you know, like soap operas themselves, soap operas resist closure. They're, mm. they, 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 they will never have closure. If they have closure, they're they're ended and you, they can't end. They have to go on forever. They're soap operas. Mm. So I feel like there's a little bit of a kind of meta exploration of that idea going on with the figure of the one-armed man, you mm. know, or just the choice to ha- of having a one-armed man in there. Yeah. Um, we get the scene of Audrey dancing to mental jazz. Mental in, jazz. In her... Um, the uh, her knees together like she's trying to stand. She needs the jazz master. <laughs> she's trying to start, start a bit of a crotch fire, I yeah, think, yeah. with the... <laughs> They're all uh, wiggling around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I mean, it's got to be said, Sharon and Fenn, beautiful so woman, uh, said I had a nice voice. Just saying. You um, do have a nice voice. And uh, sorry. You do have. A oh, voice. I thought you said you don't have a nice voice. I'm like, oh, well, tell Sharon and Fenn that because. <laughs> Hi, Sharon. <laughs> yeah. Um, like nice voice. You you know him as the jazz master. <laughs> oh, 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 jazz master Mike. Oh, very similar yeah, 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 yeah. He's never happier with himself than when he's saying that word, is he? Um, and also in this scene, when because because basically what's happening here is she's being this kind of difficult, misunderstood youth or whatever, yeah. you know. And Ben Horn comes into the office and he's kicking off because she's making noise. And she tells him about how it I was love her. That she's really honest. Well, it's it's a cry for help. She wants of it's, it it's is. a it's a classic yeah. daddy thing, isn't it? But like you know, part of you thinks that she's going to say no, daddy, no, of course not. Mm. Um, whereas she's like, yeah, fucking right, I said that. But but the one of the great things about rewatching things is that you kind of you bury the lead because this scene is 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 probably remembered for um, Sherilyn Fenn looking beautiful. And the music, and the way it ends as well, with the kind of the camera zooming in on her and the music kind of rising in intensity. It's kind yeah. of a striking shot. Yeah. But on rewatch, because I've seen this scene a million times, and when you've watched something a million times, you start looking at the wallpaper a little bit, you know? Mm. Um, is how great Richard Beamer is in this scene? Yeah. Because one of the things that he does is I talk a lot in on podcasts about um, actors who are great at doing little bits of business. Mm. And he's got, like in this scene, he's got. Like, He's got like a lip salve or something mm. and he's like walking around and he's gesturing and he's taking the lid off and he's smelling it and he's just doing these wonderful kind of like actually things. And he's got this delicious dialogue about like you'll be scrubbing bidets in a Bulgarian convent and mm. and it's just it's just good stuff, <laughs> you know. It is. And as an actor, that must be, he must have read that script and been like, oh, brilliant, I'm going to like, I'm going to circle her when I'm, I'm going to doing... bomb those lips like you. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think because there are a lot of um, seasoned actors in Twin Peaks, mm. they know, they, I mean, they're Piper people. Laurie is amazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and they just instinctively know how to work that yeah and, and you still see actors occasionally who come up with that and it's and it was you know great loss when he died but i think philip seymour hoffman was one of those actors yeah. he was one of those actors where you know he would be he'd be walking around a scene and you'd see him like picking up props and looking at them whilst talking and then he'd, and he'd pick a moment to disengage and put it down and start talking to another actor yeah. and it was powerful and it was yeah. it was you hear about actors making choices like oh, i made a choice to do this 
And I think you get actors like Philip Seymour Hoffman, or in this case, Richard Beamer, who just make the right choices. You see, my problem with some, sometimes with that is that I'm then wondering what the fuck is up with the coaster they've just been fingering for the last five minutes. Leg of beef. It is my leg of beef. Yeah, because then I'm like, well, what the fuck's up with that coaster? What's wrong with it? Why are you holding it? What does it mean? What does it mean? (laughs) What's the significance? (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes a coaster is just a coaster. Um, But is it? Well, no, no, it's never just a coaster, Hannah. Um, We get dinner time at the Briggs. Again, every every scene in this episode. I love Bobby's father. It's great. Uh, Don Davis is one of the all-time great orators. He has got an amazing voice yeah, as well. Yeah, and, and I think that they realise that because as the show goes on, they give – I don't think he was ever really intended to be that much of a main character. I think he's one of those these, these people like like Donna's mom, um, you know, like um, Doc Hayward, who, who are there, yeah. you know, to deliver exposition and bring a little bit of earthiness to the show. But I think that Don Davis has – that almost kind of like Patrick Stewart, Ian McKellen kind of mm. um, cadence. I'd love to listen to an audio book of him reading like Mills and Boone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Well, I, I or can even... like erotic fiction. <laughs> <laughs> you see, we got a very different play. I, I was thinking I'd love to, to hear him read like a history of the Civil War or something. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like. I think you and I appreciate different things about him. <laughs> you, you, well, yeah. Well, well, it's almost like we're entirely different genders, isn't it? Um, so, uh, you, there's, there are so many things going on in this scene, and this is going to be a bit of a theme of this: is that these scenes that are great aren't just working on one level. There's like multiple things happening, yeah. and this is that dichotomous thing happening where you've got these different actors from different. So, in this scene, you've got Dana Ashbrook. Who was a you know a pretty young, inexperienced actor who'd done like a bunch of comedies and a bunch mm-hmm. of horror movies and was kind of just you know a young, a well, young as actor. As we said in the last episode, yeah, know, the classic she's all that. Yeah, yeah, sort of a, you know teen movies and a bunch of you know he'd been on like nine hundred two one zero and you know that that was the world that he lived in. Mm-hmm. But then you had like actors like Don Davis who were like theatre actors and like really seasoned, um, but also their characters existed in different genres like like Major mm-hmm. Briggs. She's all that. What the fuck am I thinking of? Um, no, no, I know what you mean. Yeah. It's the the Matthew Perry. Um, Tony Dad's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it's out of control. Yeah. Um, so, but you'll get like actors like um, well, the characters exist in different worlds as well because like Major Briggs feels like he almost exists in like some kind of um, call the army in like alien invasion science fiction movie, mm. um, and. Well, and he's in X Files. Yeah, yeah, and he's in Stargate as well, but the, the the Stargate TV show. Mm. Um, so he feels like a genre character. Yeah. Whereas, like, um, Bobby feels like a character out of like um, um, the the OC, or like he feels like a, oh, a WB so. kind yeah, of yeah. Um, kind of character. And then you've got the mother, who is a very Lynchian character, very highly strung, kind of not believable as a human being. And they're having dinner together, mm. you know. I mean, like she was like the like um, the woman who I can't remember the actress's name there, but the woman who plays Bobby's mom, she was the female lead in the Razorhead. She's like an old yeah. friend of David Lynch's. So you've got these acting styles and these character t- archetypes and these genres all kind of colliding with each other in like mm. this hadron <laughs> of a scene, 
And the way that that manifests itself is you get moments like great dialogue, like about how um, Briggs is trying to get through to his son. He's like, I understand, you know, that the 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 importance of contrariness and rebellion in and in young people, and the importance of uh, you know silence can be taken as a sign of intelligence. Mm. To have what, what's the line? To, to to have his path made clear is the the desire of every person in this clouded and tempestuous existence. You know, mm. it's unbelievable dialogue, like great yeah. writing. And that's Mark Frost. Yeah. Whenever you hear that really verbose stuff, stuff that's all Mark Frost. Yeah. But then he slaps him across the face and he's like, we're going to try real hard to make this work. Yeah. And then you've got like Bobby, just like, what the hell? And the, the kind of comedy shot of his cigarette stuck in the meatloaf or whatever yeah. it is. And his mum's like, everything's fine. She's like, yeah, yeah. She's she's like, it's okay. And you can tell that she's just hanging on by a thread. Yeah. And probably has been for like 30 years. Now, Hannah's League of Beef for this episode is when he's got a bruise on his face later on when he's in the car with Mike, it's on the wrong side of his face. No, but his bruise is from the fight in the roadhouse. I thought it was from, because he had no bruises before, like when he was at dinner. Well, bruises take a while to settle in, don't they? I think it was a mistake. Could you explain for new listeners Hannah's leg of beef? I know you've already explained this, but every time we cover a new show... Right. And maybe we should edit this part out separately so we can drop it in when we cover, um, I don't know, Sex in the City or whatever we do next. We're not <laughs> Sex in the City. So, Hannah's leg of beef. This all started when we watched Rocky Balboa. Yeah. So there's a really poignant scene between Rocky and his brother. Paulie. Paulie. Is it his brother? It's his brother-in-law. Brother-in-law. That's right. Yeah, brother-in-law. Hadrian's brother. So on, yeah. Um, and I could re-watch the Rocky films again. You know, yeah, I'm sure we will. Um, anyway, they're having this very – he's been sacked from the meatworks that he works at – and he's drunk, and he turns up at the restaurant with this big side of beef. Yeah. And he slaps it down on the on the bar at the restaurant, and obviously Rocky comes up like, "What the fuck's the matter?" Yeah, and he takes him down into the basement to talk to him, doesn't he? Yeah. They they yeah they go down and sort of out the back of the restaurant to have this really emotional talk about um, moving on with their lives. Yeah, moving on with their lives, feeling stuck sort of scrabbling around for purpose and meaning and, you know, all of those it's things. It's the eye of the duck scene. Yeah, and, um, you know, he's he's sort of, like, you can see he's got PTSD from war and all of those sorts mm. of things. Um, and when we covered the Rocky films back in, like, actual proper full-on lockdown, um, I my takeaway was what the fuck happened to the leg of beef? On the bar. And that's uh, all you need to know about Hannah. I could not stop thinking about it. Was it going off on the bar? Yeah. You wouldn't want to eat it after. But what, what ultimately, bar. though, what people, you're, what you're talking about. There'd be saliva on the I, bar. I, I, I joke about this and gently mock this, but in reality, what we're talking about is when people talk about things where they and they say, it took me out of the movie. Yeah. That's what we're talking about. It's a moment that takes you out yeah. and makes you think about something else. Yes. Um, and when I told this to Mike on the podcast the first time, you quite rightly said that the way 
the way it would have been okay for me as a movie is if someone had poked their head around the corner and gone, I've just popped that leg of beef in the freezer. Yeah. Uh, but that would have been <laughs> a, a massive boner killer oh, for the scene. Oh, it would have been scene, terrible. Yeah. And I know it's a failing in my personality that that these things, they play on my mind. They worry me. And I have a friend who is very much the same, who when she watched the uh, the first of the Star Wars sequels. Mm-hmm. The Force Awakens. Force Awakens. That's the one. She watched up until BB-8 rolled a- along the sand and was like, I can't watch it anymore. The sand would have got in the roller. How is he still rolling? There's nothing for him to roll on. No, the grit. And that's when you know it's not for you. And it's like musicals. It's like if you're the sort of, if you're going to go, why are they singing? Then it's like, well, just stop. Turn it off. Just stop now. I'm not that bad. I obviously, if I'm into something, I'll suspend my disbelief. There are certain genres where you have to let it go. Like if you find yourself asking, why is that woman suddenly having sex with the guy who's here to fix a photocopier? You should not be watching pornography. <laughs> you know, just use your imagination at that if point. If you're watching you know. it for the story, you you've missed yeah, the point. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean that that it just took me out the porno <laughs> completely. Have a look at the junk. Exactly. That's what you yeah. Do. Yeah. Exactly. Look at the uh, look at the donut, not the hole. <laughs> just to uh, <laughs> use the Twin Peaks Twin Peaks analogy, we get two more. Um, <laughs> two more pieces of this incredible pie. That's my favourite um, Cooper line in this episode. Yeah. Where, and again, it's one of those things where he's like uh, asking for the um, it's the Meals on Wheels thing, isn't it? Yeah. And he's like, oh, yeah, if you could tell me about that, that would be really helpful. And two more pieces of this incredible pie. And the fact that it's two pieces, not one. Yeah, like he knows. He's that greedy. Yeah, and again, Truman gets the great line where he's like, you must have the uh, metabolism of a bumblebee. bumblebee. You know, the fact that like <laughs> Cooper's this like, whip-it-thin yeah. kind of guy despite what he eats. Yeah, uh, And that's when we get the, the great scene with the log lady as well. The log lady came from um, an idea that Lynch had. Uh, he made a lot of short films, a lot, you know, a lot, a lot of stop-motion animation in his early days. And he had um, a Catherine Coulson um, who was... She worked on a razor head with him. She was like a set dresser and just a creative collaborator. Mm. And uh, she, he came up with this idea for a story called My Log Has Stories. And it was the idea that there was this woman who um, um, her, her husband was a firefighter and he burnt to death on their wedding night mm. fighting a fire. And she believed that um, his spirit um, was in, the log. Was in was, went into a tree. Mm. So she... Um, cut the, tr- the log, d- the tree down, and kept the log. And it's never expressed explicitly in Twin Peaks, but somebody says, you know, uh, I think Hawk says that you know your husband died in a fire. So I think that that Lynchian idea. I think the idea is that her husband is in there. Yeah. You know, um, it's it, it's that's one of those things where I think you have to have a little bit of meta knowledge. You, you wouldn't just get that from the show. No. But uh, to me, in my sort of head canon. That's what it is, is that that's her. Uh, and again, I think it's that, it's that great dichotomy between Mark Frost and David Lynch because I think David Lynch, his view is, yeah, that's her husband mm. uh, on some level. Whereas I think if you ask Mark Frost, he'd say she probably had like a mental breakdown when her husband died. Yeah. And one of her coping mechanisms was was this security blanket. Well, you it's, know, It's like an emotional support. Yeah, yeah, mm. exactly. And, you know, they're both right. 
Yeah. The show is what it is. Yeah. And, you know, if you as a viewer choose one over the other or some third crazy option, you know, knock yourself out, that's yeah. fine. We get the soap in a sock moment. And I think we were talking when the Machin Amit character goes home. And I always remember that. It was one of those that became kind of a weird trope. Like everybody remembered that element of it, mm. this soap in a sock. And I like the fact that there's another little moment of the show setting up Leo as the potential killer because you notice when she, when the Machinamic character is sort of cowering in the corner, there's all that plastic. Yeah. is it's, And it looks like the same plastic. That, so I think there was a, there's a little bit of kind of, ooh, maybe, you know, they're definitely maybe pushing us. something to do with this. Yeah, yeah, over in that direction. Yeah. Um, Especially and, because they've also... They've also linked um, the advert in the Flesh World magazine with the truck. Yeah, you know, the pilot. Should, yeah. Yeah, yeah, good point. And, and it, it's worth mentioning as well that one of the experiences of watching this show in real time when it first came out mm. was the water cooler element of it because this was pre-internet. Uh, well, the internet existed, but nobody really, apart from like super, super nerds used it, mm. was – all the theorizing, you know. I mean, we'd had we'd had like who shot Jr. and these other kind of zeitgeisty culture who pop culture things. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that was big. Uh, uh, who shot Mr. Burns? <laughs> you know, all those sort of things. And Brown gets shot. I know it's 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 really um, pretty careless, isn't mm-hmm. it? In many ways, the conversation at the time. I just remember how into it people were and how kind of obsessed. And to the point where I remember there was a book. And it was an unofficial book called Welcome to Twin Peaks. And it came out, bet- I think, towards the end of the first season or maybe between the first season and the second season. And it had all the theories. It was kind of like, and this was like a bestseller, you know. And it was an episode guide and interviews that they cribbed from Rolling Stone magazine or wherever. And it had, and I remember it had all these theories and it listed all the characters and why it might be there. And with Leo, it had kind of like, well, you know, Flesh World and the plastic wrapping material that you've got in like the perennially half finished house mm. that, uh, that he's got and uh, that him and Shelley have got. And I, it's, they're the elements of the show that get lost now when you just watch it in the uh, 21st century as this thing that happened in the early nineties. But when the show was on, there was all this conversation and there was all of these this material and all of this these theorizing and uh about it and you know actors going on chat shows and being like hey I can't talk about it you know I've got to be mm. and they're the kind of cultural artifacts that get forgotten mm. and that get lost and that I kind of want to champion a little bit absolutely you know? and like that was half the fun of watching stuff yeah. back in the day is that there was no way to find out That's it. And you- apart from watching it and that's a kind of an additional enjoyment level that you don't get watching it now. You, yeah. But there are. But now you you get being able to watch it in incredible fidelity, absolutely, you know, and being able to watch it immediately, and then be able to go and watch like a four and a half hour director's cut of Firewalk with me yeah. after it if you want to, you know. Yeah. And um, we we're going to be doing Firewalk with me, aren't we? Um, well, I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. I, I think we should. Um, so we, we get James going around for dinner, and I love this. And the next episode does this as well. It really captures that awkwardness of the um, meeting the dad, particularly yeah. when you're young. You know, I mean, I remember I had this. I had a girlfriend uh, 
Sonia around. Actually, no, no, my, girl, my girlfriend Liz at the time of this. And I remember going around to her house and meeting her dad, and it was all cordial. But there was there was this subtext of like, you better keep that thing away from my daughter, pal. You know, <laughs> and you can sense that it's and you hannah said you know when we were watching the episode oh you're not wearing the leather jacket now you know he's got the yeah. kind of he's got a good got virginal jumper on, on. There, you know but james was he was never a biker in a kind of brian bosworth lorenzo lamas kind of way he was not a t-bird no he was he was a t-back no <laughs> um it, he, he was he was more of the kind of the misunderstood james dean writing poetry kind of biker yeah he was the a kind of yeah rider. yeah he yeah he was he was the Maxwell Caulfield yeah. kind of feels deeply about things yeah. kind of kind of biker. He's gonna um, do a jump over the Loel and yeah. uh, win the heart of, of Michelle Michelle Pfeiffer. Um, but I believe that he would own a jumper. I really want to watch Grease Two now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. And not even watch Grease One first. We're gonna go straight to Grease Two. Yeah, yeah. The best song about the calendar. Yeah, I mean, I like Grease Two. But the less said about the shady prequel, <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the better. But no, but uh, but again, it's the there's something about living rooms in Twin Peaks. There's something about the the 1950s living room as as, as a space and what that represents and what that means and how it feels and the, the color of carpet and ornaments and just the, and photographs and dinner tables and mm. you know everything about that is just such a kind of part of this world and and it's kind of like fetishized but at the same time shown as this weird kind of alien thing mm. and i think that's one of the things that david lynch does really well i know this episode wasn't directed by david lynch but he's he's really good at showing you something that you've seen many times but making you feel like you're seeing it for the first time yeah it's a little bit like lsd in the sense that you could be looking at something but you feel like you're actually only really seeing it for the first time ever. And that's such a kind of esoteric skill, mm. you know, and I don't think that that he could define how he does that, but you do like sometimes he'll show you a cigarette or uh, a light bulb or a ceiling fan or a microphone or something. And it, you just, I mean, in Twin Peaks, the return in the third season, I remember there's this establishing shot of New York and I'm just like, wow, I've never seen New York look like that. You know, how do you make New York look different just by yeah. filming it, you know? Uh, and that's about having a sensibility in your own personal perspective mm. on something. Yeah. But then we cut to the final scene. We see Dr. Jacoby uh, open up his coconut and we see the half uh, heart. And spills the milk everywhere. <laughs> um, we've all been there. Yeah. And um, so basically what we learn here is that it was him that, that Sarah saw in her vision at yeah. the end of the first episode. So it was him that was obviously watching Donna and James mm. hide the heart and he recovered it for some nefarious purpose whilst listening to Laura. And he seems to have a very emotional, again, pure, raw emotion mm. shown um, at the end of the episode. Very different to the perspective that you saw of him in the pilot. Yeah, like kind of creepy detachment, like morbid what curiosity. And almost excited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, he was kind of trivialising it. Yeah. Whereas there's obviously... Sort of getting off on the drama. Of it. Yeah. Mm. But there's there's some kind of hidden depth here that we don't yet understand that yeah. I'm sure will be explored Absolutely. further. Any final thoughts on this episode, Hannah? No, just super solid. Can't wait to get on 
and further into it. Yeah, no, I agree. Okay, so feedback always appreciated at rewatchprojectpodcast at gmail.com, Instagram and Twitter at rewatchproj, that's rewatch, P-R-O-J. Uh, also, if you listen to us on YouTube, then please do feel free to leave comments there and we will read them out on the show. Check out our friends' podcasts and also reviews are very much appreciated on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. So uh, what are we talking about next time, Anna? The next episode is called Zen or the Skill to Catch a Killer. Uh, synopsis says, Ben Horn's brother Jerry arrives in Twin Peaks. Oh, I love Together Jerry Horn. they travel to One-Eyed Jacks and meet with the Madam Blackie O'Reilly. Audrey leaves a clue for Cooper. Deputy Hawk finds a bloody towel near the crime scene. It is directed by David Lynch and written by... Mark Frost, David Lynch, and Harley Payton cool. credited. Awesome. Okay. Um, I am really looking forward to that. That yeah. is um, arguably um, one of the best episodes of season one. So that will be uh, an exciting Bring watch. It on. We will see you very soon, guys. I'm looking forward to it. See you later. Yeah.